Acts chapter 3, and we're continuing on in Acts. Acts chapter 3, and I'm reading from verse 11 to verse 26. They all rushed out to Solomon's colonnade, where he was holding tightly to Peter and John. Everyone stood there in awe of the wonderful thing that had happened. Peter saw his opportunity to address and address the crowd. People of Israel, he said, what is so astounding about this? And why look at us as though we had made this man walk by our own power and goodness? For it is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of all our ancestors who has brought glory to his servant Jesus by doing this. This is the same Jesus who, handed, who you handed over and rejected before Pilate, despite Pilate's decision to release him. You rejected this holy, righteous one, and instead demanded the release of a murderer. You killed the author of life, but God raised him to life, and we are witnesses of this fact. The name of Jesus has healed this man, and you know how lame he was before. Faith in Jesus' name has caused this healing before your very eyes. Friends, I realize that what you did to Jesus was done in ignorance, and the same can be said of your leaders. But God was fulfilling what all the prophets had declared about the Messiah beforehand, that he must suffer all these things. Now, turn from your sins and turn to God so you can be cleansed of your sins. Then wonderful times of refreshment will come from the presence of the Lord and he will send Jesus, your Messiah, to you again. For he must remain in heaven until the time for the final restoration of all things as God promised long ago through his prophets. Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up a prophet like me from among your own people. Listen carefully to everything he tells you. Then Moses said, Anyone who will not listen to that prophet will be cut off from God's people and utterly destroyed. Starting with Samuel, and every prophet spoke about what is happening today. You are the children of those prophets, and you are included in the covenant God promised to your ancestors. For God said to Abraham, Through your descendants, all the families on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you, people of Israel, to bless you by turning each of you back from your sinful ways. And we look forward to Gail coming and sharing us uh, with us shortly from God's word. Let's continue. Thanks, Mason. I wonder, um, have you ever had a, a favourite item of clothing Maybe clothing, it's where you, what you wear it for good and you've got it stained really bad by something. Maybe, maybe not. I have a good friend who's got total disregard for clothing, even if it's really good. He'll have really good clothes that he you know, wears out for special occasions and then he'll go and work on his car or kind of get under the motor and start tinkering around and get grease all over it. And uh, not that easy getting grease out of your clothes. Um, the one time, I think it was, or maybe second or third time, I've actually washed the shower. Um, I was in there cleaning it out with a, a nice top and I was cleaning it with chlorine or like a bleach kind of agent. And then when I got out, I saw this, all these kind of white specks on my, my top I really liked. It was kind of wrecked. And uh, even great stain removers uh, can't get out really, really bad stains, uh, especially bleach marks and grease. And you know, once you get your good clothes stained, you can no longer use them what they're actually intended for. You, know, you can't use them for good like is actually the way you want them to be. The purpose of actually uh, your clothes. And it's similar when it comes to the staining effect of sin in our lives. 
So we've been formed, we've been created to worship God, to live lives that worship God. Now we've been created to, uh, to live in a right relationship with God. But we've each been stained. We've each been stained quite badly by the effects of sin. So every time we do wrong, every time we say wrong, every time we think um, in our hearts evil thoughts, we're stained one more time. We're stained one more time by the effects of sin. And this means that no longer can we uh, be used for our intended purpose. We, we no longer can really be used to worship God or, or live in a right relationship with God. Our relationship with Him is broken. And no human thought, no human work can take away the stain. But tonight we, we're sharing in communion and we remember the death of Jesus Christ. We remember uh, the one, the death of Jesus, the one who existed before creation, before, pe- before things, before we were even made. And even more, Jesus, the one dying, is the one through whom the whole universe is actually being created. And we remember the moment that Jesus hung on the cross and died. The moment that his flesh was torn, his hands and feet nailed to the cross, and we remember his blood shed, his blood dripping from his body, dripping to the foot of the cross. And this is the way, this is the way we have our stained removed, our sins forgiven. And there's a passage in the book of Revelation written by a guy called John and he's talking about the end time when God's judged the world and, then, and all these people who trust in Jesus are standing before the throne and I'll read some of it out to you. After this, uh, John looked and, he, and there before him was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb, that's Jesus. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And then a little later, Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they? And where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. It's the blood of Jesus, the blood of the Lamb, that takes away our stain, takes away our sin. You know, all people who turn to Jesus, acknowledge their stains and ask for forgiveness through Jesus, we're washed clean. We're washed whiter than snow. So we remember Jesus' death, his bloodshed that makes us wash and it makes us our sins washed away you know what can wash away our sins and what can make us whole again you know what can purify our dirty garments and make them whiter than snow nothing nothing at all in all creation but the blood of jesus nothing but his blood so tonight, as we remember, I just want to, you know, before Ken prays, I just want to encourage us to give you a moment where you can reflect on what Jesus has done for you. Reflect on that if you trust in Jesus tonight, that his blood has made you clean. His blood has washed you pure. And if you have sins that you know are at the forefront of your mind, just ask God to forgive you and know his forgiveness tonight. Let's take a moment just to really reflect.
Heavenly Father, uh, we come before you tonight in obedience to your instructions to partake of Holy Communion in remembrance of you, Lord. Where the bread we partake of represents the broken body and the juice represents the spilt blood of our dear Lord Jesus who died for each one of us at Calvary in the most incredible act of love and obedience we've ever seen on the face of this earth. This was to make entry to the kingdom of heaven possible for each one of us who are prepared to accept him as our Lord and Saviour. But Lord, before we do partake tonight, we think of what Philip has spoken about, the stains, Lord, and our unrighteousness. And we want to be in right relationship with you tonight by the full confession of our sins. And Lord, I pray this evening as I learned as a child in a very small Anglican church, merciful God, our maker and our judge. We've sinned against you in thought, word and in deed. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbours as ourselves. We repent and are truly sorry for all our sins. Father, forgive us. Strengthen us to love and obey you in newness of life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So Lord, we say thank you for your amazing love and forgiveness towards us. We pray that all we do here in this place tonight will be so pleasing to you. In Jesus' wonderful name we pray. Amen. Well, this meal is for um, everyone here tonight who who's put their trust in Jesus and who loves Jesus and longs to live for him. Um, if you're new to our church, um, please don't feel like you have to uh, take any of the elements as they come past you. Um, when you receive the uh, bread and the cup, eat, eat the bread in your own time. And uh, this is what Jesus said about it. He said, uh, bread, this is, this, is, uh, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And when you get the cup, just hold on to the cup and then a little later we'll, we'll all drink together, symbolising our community of faith here. Good evening. Can you, um, is it working okay? Good. <laughs> it's all right. I just want to thank Jonathan for reading that um, passage from Colossians, Colossians 3, 9 to 26. And um, the whole passage talks about um, Jesus um, right from um, the Abra- Abraham and his line. But the part that I really wanted to pick up on was the part when I was reading it and, and thinking about it was... The, the scripture that said that Jesus is the author of life and it just hit me, it, it um, really impacted me. I thought about that and I thought he's the author of my life as well. He's the author of life in general, um, life in, you know, the whole of life, the whole of creation but he's also the author of my life and, and how am I to respond to that? And last week when we were at Hillsong, there was a, a, um, a preacher that was talking about the top five books of all time. And I was really interested in that because I thought, look, there's millions of books in the world. What on earth could be the top five? Well, I always thought the Bible would be one. But the second top five book of all time was the quotes of, of Mao. That's Mao, the Chinese uh, leader that is now dead. And so obviously that would make sense because there's millions of Chinese in the world. And then third that came in as the top uh, was the Noah's Webster's Dictionary. So I thought, well, yeah, that makes sense because 
you know, we all have to know, we all had dictionaries when we were at school, weren't we? Didn't we? And then the, the fourth was a Jehovah's Witness track and I thought that, that was a bit surprising, that, that did surprise me, but then I thought, well, you know, the Jehovah's Witness, even though we might not agree with their theology, you have to hand it to them, they really, they live their faith, don't they, going out door to door, so okay. But the fifth was really interesting because it was a very tiny little booklet that was written by a man called Albert Hubbard in 1899 and it was called Carry a Message to Garcia. And I'd never ever heard that before. Has anyone heard that of that little you, oh, I knew Brian McGorlick would have heard that. <laughs> that doesn't surprise me. Well, I hadn't ever heard that before. And basically, it was written one evening and it was just about a two or three page little booklet. And it was in response to the Cuban War, the war between America and Spain. And um, it was really... Uh, just a remarkable story how this little booklet ended up being um, reproduced into millions and millions and millions of copies just by a series of accidents. And the book was, booklet was just basically a cry to who will carry a message to this Captain Garcia in the Spanish army. And it was who would be willing enough, who would be uh, who would have the courage enough to not answer any questions or not to argue, but when given instructions, would just say, okay, I'm willing, I'll go. That was the essential message of the book. And uh, it was reprinted through um, a number of different countries because it carried such a a clarion call for people to wake up and to not live in their own kind of self-centeredness, but to step out of that and to say, look, whatever the cost, I'm going to go forward. And uh, it was reproduced into Russian and into Chinese and even given to every Japanese um, soldier in the Second World War as this kind of motivational little booklet. And I thought about that. I thought, how could something just so uh, spontaneous and fairly insignificant, it appeared first in just a local newspaper and then became this kind of, had this momentum uh, that was carried through to the, all the four corners of the earth. And I thought about that and I thought, that's a little bit like our lives, isn't it? That um, our lives are just so small and so tiny in comparison to the billions of people that walk this earth. And yet because Jesus Christ lives in us, as we'll see from this scripture reading tonight, uh, it has the potential, the momentum to impact the world over and over again. So carrying a message to Garcia, have a check, uh, look on the web and have a read about that. It's quite an amazing little story. But tonight my sermon is entitled, What About This Life That You Gave Me? And it's in Acts 3, 11 to 26. Um, but just before we move into 11 to 26, I've got to give you the context for this. And the context is in what you heard, I think, Phil, I wasn't here last week, but Phil preached last week. And it was the healing of the lame man. And this miracle occurred um, after Pentecost. And after Jesus' ascension, there were two miracles that occurred. It was the first was the miracle at Pentecost when the flames of fire came uh, on all the believers. And the second miracle was the healing of this lame man. And in verse 9, it says, All the people saw him walking and heard him praising God because Peter had, in the name of Jesus, healed this lame man. And when they realised he was the lame beggar that they had seen so often at the beautiful gate, they were absolutely astounded. 
the scriptures tell us. So, so this is the context. The lame man had been healed. And for me, when I think about that central theme tonight that I want to push home to you, that Jesus is the author of our life, well, the first part of this uh, Uh, whole scripture is that this author that we have, Jesus Christ, is an astounding author. He is able to heal a lame man. And verse 11 says, they all rushed out to Solomon's colonnade where he was holding tightly to Peter and John and everyone stood there in awe of the wonderful thing that had happened. You know, the crowd gathered. It was filled with wonder as in the day of Pentecost. But there were no sceptics in this crowd. The problem for the healing of this lame man was that people thought too much of Peter and John, not too little, as was in the case at Pentecost. Uh, Peter and John were the heroes and um, because they had healed this this man, but as we come to see in this scripture, it wasn't them that healed, it was Jesus working through them. They were given the credit for the miracles, and Peter's first response was to correct this misconception, just as he corrected the first misconception at Pentecost that the people were all drunk because they were speaking in their own prayer language, and he had to. Uh, correct that misconception, so too he goes on to correct the misconception here that it was actually he that had healed uh, the uh, lame man, which it wasn't. And he says, Peter saw his opportunity and addressed the crowd. People of Israel, he said, what is so astounding about this, that that this lame man has been healed? And why look at us? as though we had made this man walk by our own power and godliness. For it is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of all our ancestors, who has brought glory to his servant Jesus by doing this. So Peter goes into uh, correction mode straight away and he um, pushes his own self away and says, no, The person who has healed this man is Jesus. He is the author of life who astounds. And I find it interesting if we go back, we find that the the beggar was actually holding on to Peter. After he was healed, we find that he's still clinging tightly to Peter. And I think, what, what I've come to uh, think about that is that even though this beggar was healed, he wrongly assumed it was Peter that had healed him. And so he was clinging to a falsehood. He was clinging to the thing that wasn't truth. And I think about how often we do that in our lives. We know the truth. We just heard the truth that Jesus Christ died for us, died for our sins, washed us, washed us with his blood and made us clean, made us righteous. And we know that. We know that. And yet we still cling to other things in our lives, to other untruths. We still cling to perhaps our own strength. We still cling to how we might still direct our life, still direct um, what, you know, this book that is our life, you know, um, we still hold on to the fact that we have control. And here is this beggar clinging wrongly to the wrong thing. And, and you would just hope that the healing, the physical healing, wasn't all that happened, that this man would have gone on and had a real sense of the risen Christ healing his life in all aspects of his life. And you know, that's not to say that healing itself 
isn't wrong. Healing is very much a godly thing. God can heal, as was evidenced in this particular um, scripture, that through the power of Jesus Christ, this lame man was healed. And I believe that God does want to heal his heart is to heal people. I believe that passionately. I believe that just as God healed 2,000 years ago, he still wants to heal today. I believe that so much, but I believe that even more than physical healing, I think when we think about healing, there is a process. There are some things that we want to make sure occur before we see a physical healing. First of all, we want to ask ourselves with this illness or or this infirmity, how is God going to be glorified through this? I think that's the very first thing we want to ask ourselves. And we could see with that lame man that he was actually, uh, through his healing, God was glorified. And I think that's a really significant thing. And I think that's something that I'm quite humbled by when I see, and I'm sure most of you would say the same thing, when I see people that are struggling with a major physical illness, it's like God does a special work in their lives. It's like God somehow gives them a special measure of his portion of his faith. And it's like their lives, despite physical um, healing, perhaps, it's like God is glorified through them, through their faithfulness. And I think that's the first thing about healing. We have to say, how is God glorified? And even for some of you here tonight, if you are faced with a physical illness, I think that's the first question. Not, Lord, would you heal me? But, Lord, how are you going to be glorified through this? I think God always has a purpose through illness. God can work through a person's illness um, to purpose his will and his outcomes in their lives. And sometimes physical healings never occur, but sometimes there is a spiritual or emotional healing that is far more potent, far more powerful in a person's life, which has a momentum and a manifold output um, that impacts and changes other lives. I think we're asked to really pray and discern what the underlying causes of this illness is. And it's very clear that scripturally the Bible says there are many reasons for illness. Illness can be caused through our own sinfulness. Illness can be caused through an embittered or an unforgiving heart. Illness can even be caused by taking of communion inappropriately, it tells us in 2 Corinthians. Illness can be caused through no impact or no um, uh, fault of our own. It's something that has been done to us through environment or accident. There are a whole reason, a whole lot of underlying causes for illness that we have to discern. And lastly, we pray for guidance and for healing. We always pray for healing. So Jesus the author of our lives, is an astounding author. And he astounded the people around, uh, that were gathered around Peter and John when uh, the beggar was healed. And then he goes on to say that he is the author of our ancestors. All the people saw him walking and heard him praising God And they realised that the lame beggar they had seen so often at the beautiful gate uh, was actually the beggar that had been coming to that gate day after day and there was no one there to heal him, no one to put him into the water. But Peter goes on to say, there is nothing astounding about this. Why look at us? And uh, as if we had made this man walk by our own power and godliness. For it is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of all our ancestors, who has brought glory to his servant, Jesus, by doing this. And then later we find, we'll just uh, 
go back to that one. Later we find in verse 22, he goes on to say, as the author of our ancestors, Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up a prophet like me from among your own people. Listen carefully to everything he tells you. Then Moses said, anyone who will not listen to that prophet will be cut off from God's people and utterly destroyed. Starting with Samuel, every prophet spoke about what is happening today. You are the children of those prophets and you are included in the covenant God promised to your ancestors. For God said to Abraham, through your descendants, all the families on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you people of Israel to bless you by turning each of you back from your sinful ways. You know, Jesus Christ is the author of our ancestors as well. And I had to think about that because I actually am amazed at the way God touched my life. When I look back through my generations, I can say on my side of the family, I don't have any Christian heritage whatsoever. I think back and I think on both my parents' side, my parents' parents' side and right back, no influence of Christianity at all. And I think, Lord, why was I the first? Why was I the first to come to know you, the first to accept you? I broke that generational pattern. And it wasn't me, it was the Lord. And I feel so humbled about that. I think of my generations and I think of some of the, the, the real challenges that go back through my generations, just destruction and, and, and um, a lot of wastedness. And I think, Lord, why am I so privileged to have come to know you? And, and then when I came to know the Lord, my sister became a Christian a few years after that. And, and that's all so far no one else. And, and I have to say to you that it really hasn't been easy to actually break that generational um, patterning because it was met with enormous opposition. If you can imagine generations of no Christians and then a Christian, a, a sole little Christian, a bit like that little letter to Garcia, what power does that have? And yet, now I can say that I've joined with a Christian man who had a heritage of Christian generations in his family and I'm blessed in that my children are Christians and I believe fully that the next generation will go on to be Christians and so that, that generation that was barren has now become fertile. And I praise God for that. That's my natural um, inheritance. But God is also talking here about a spiritual inheritance that we can all have when we come and give our lives to Jesus Christ. We are no longer onlookers. We are no longer marginalised. We are no longer illegitimate. When we come to give our lives to Jesus, we join this incredible heritage of ancestry in a spiritual sense that goes as far back as uh, Abraham, right through to Isaac, right through to Jacob, right through to Moses, right through to Samuel, right through to Jesus. We join that stream. Don't you think that's incredible? We have a spiritual genealogy that no one can take away from us. And I just want to say to you young people here tonight, don't disregard, don't take for granted if you've come from a line of Christian 
parents and, and, and maybe even grandparents. Don't malign that. Don't disregard that. Don't take that for granted. You have no idea how special, how privileged you are to have that. I praise God that I now have that. And it's possible if you never have it, had it, to have it. But oh, how much more the blessing when you have had it. Don't malign it. And I also want to say to you how incredibly responsible it makes you to not treat your life, this book that is authored by God, don't treat your life as if it is something flippant and not to be taken seriously because you, just as I, now have the responsibility to make sure that the next generation follows through this spiritual line to your children and your children's children and you are responsible today for not only your life but for the life of perhaps you don't have children yet but your children to come and their children and their children's children. And if you turn away, if you move out of that spiritual inheritance, then you are responsible not only for that yourself, but for the generations to come after you. And I find that an awesome responsibility. And I believe this is what, um, this is what is being said here. We come from a spiritual line. And we have to take it very seriously. So that's my story. But I want to tell you another story. And this is about a four-generational family of Christians. And I'm gonna, maybe by the end of this you might know who we're talking about. But this is, um, yeah, four generations, which I think is special. Great-granddad who is sitting on the chair there. And he got married at 19 and came to know the Lord at the age of 20. He thinks, the author of this says, he thinks it was on a tennis court. So I kind of quizzed him. I thought, I don't know how that happened. But anyway, that's what they think. So his son, um, the man up the back in the red jumper, granddad, was born and he was brought up in a Christian family alongside three siblings. Granddad was involved in Gideon's and his local church. Granddad and grandma had eight children. My dad, the one over onto the right there, my dad was the eldest boy and he grew up in a Christian household going to camps and getting involved in church. Dad married mum and they... I'm having trouble reading this writing. And they were youth group leaders at Rainbow, a little country town near the big desert. They decided they would like to know more about God and how to lead youth, so they went to Bible college. Dad and Mum stayed on after Bible college for another five years. I was born up there at Hornsby Hospital and also grew up in a lovely Christian, loving Christian family. I came to know the Lord at six years, that's the little boy on the knee of age, and got serious about following Christ at 15 while on a camp um, after an altar call at the front. God is faithful. The family is Christian and it's Carl's Christian's family. And I just thought that was such, um, I knew about Carl's heritage and I thought there's probably many others that can say they have such an enriched heritage going back generations. But don't you think that is so special? I reckon that deserves a clap. Praise God for that. Because that's, that is special. And that is what we pray will continue down through us. Amen? Continue down through our children and their children's children. That's the inheritance that is being talked about in this uh, scripture here. The author of our ancestors, starting with Samuel, going right through. So what is the outcomes of this 
And what are the outcomes of this? Well, we just heard that there was glory in this outcome of this ancestry. And there's a sense of belonging that when we move from perhaps a uh, physical inheritance, a physical descendancy to a spiritual one, when we join the line of Jesus, we have a sense of belonging. We have an inheritance which is beyond measure. This is what we have now if you are in the Lord. We're actually called children. We're called the children of God. We are God's children. I'm just blown away by that. And it says in the scriptures that uh, we are blessed, but we're also called to be a blessing. And there's this sense of succession that it must continue. It must go on. So we have this marvellous inheritance, as did the Israelites. They did as well. But unfortunately, they didn't claim it. They didn't take hold of it. What did they do? They, they, they had as much right to this spiritual inheritance. But in verse 13b, it says, this is the same Jesus whom you handed over and rejected before Pilate, despite Pilate's decision to release him. You rejected this holy, righteous one, and instead you demanded the release of a murderer. You killed the author of life, but God raised him to life. And we are witnesses to this fact. You killed the author of life. We are all guilty for killing the author of life through our sin. Yet God had other plans. God raised him to life. You know, there is such contrast here, contrast which astound. We have the rejection of Jesus versus his glorification in his resurrection and his ascension. We have the corruption that the crowds, when Jesus was before Pilate, insisted that Barabbas be released instead of Jesus. So we have corruption versus justice and crucifixion versus, you know, the release of Jesus. And then we have all through the Old Testament the fact that God was calling Jesus, the, the, the Jews to be faithful and they would rather listen to false prophets than the one true prophet. And what did they do? Instead of listening to the true prophet, they crucified him. So despite this incredible inheritance that, we, that the Jews had, as well as we had, they decided to reject him. You killed the author of life, but God raised him to life. That is the victory of the cross. That is our inheritance. So what about your life? If your life has been ransomed at such a price, which it has, Rick Warren says there are only two questions that he believes will be asked at the end of life. Don't ask me how he knows that. But anyway, he says there are only two. The first is, what have you done with my Lord Jesus Christ in your life? And then the second question he says, which is a serving question, is what's in your hand? And so how are you going to serve? Your life is a book that has been authored by Jesus Christ. It has been ransomed at an incredible cost. And even if you were the only person left on this planet, Jesus would have still died for you. Are you getting the picture tonight just how special but how responsible your life really is. You know, many people talk about, or uh, it's one of my favourite scriptures actually, 
Um, John 10.10, my purpose is to give life and life in all its fullness. I love that. I love living life fully for Jesus. But people forget about the first few words before that. It's still John 10.10. It says the thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. My purpose is to give life and life in all its fullness. You know, so often being a Christian and living the Christian life feels anything but the life abundant, doesn't it? It feels as if Satan has tried to rob us. It feels as if Satan has tried to kill our spirit. It feels as if Satan wants to destroy our families, wants to destroy our health, wants to destroy our faith. But Jesus ransomed our life at a cost. He is the author of our life. So he promises by his spirit that he will give us life and life in all its fullness. John Eldridge in his book, uh, Waking the Dead, says that, and I love it, he says that um, if you want to really dream or live your dreams, then you've got to get out of bed. How do we live our lives for Jesus? Well, we make a decision to do that. We make a decision to get out of the driver's seat and to get in the passenger's seat and let him take the wheel and let him be the author of our life and that we partner with him in our life. But he's the one that knows best. He's the one that's writing the book of our life. You know, Revelation 20, 11 to 15 says, and it's a very sobering thought, I saw a great white throne and I saw the one who was sitting on it. The earth and sky fled from his presence, but they found no place to hide. I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before God's throne. And the books were opened, including the book of life. And the dead were judged according to the things written in the books, according to what they had done. The sea gave up the dead in it, and the dead death, sorry, and death and the grave gave up the dead in them. They were all judged according to their deeds, and death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone whose name was not recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. I just want to say to you tonight, if there's anyone here who has not considered handing their life to the author of life, Jesus Christ, don't wait another moment. Do it tonight. Do it now. Your life will never be the same. It will be full of life in all its fullness. But, there's a but. We have to remember we're in a battle. We don't live this life easily. We live this life as if we're in a war. But God is more than able to overcome. And how do we overcome well, the scriptures go on to talk about the author of life's authority. Jesus has authority. In verse 16, it says, The name of Jesus has healed this man, and you know how lame he was before. Faith in Jesus' name has caused this healing before your very eyes. The name of Jesus has power. Friends, I realise, says Peter, that what you did to Jesus was done in ignorance and the same can be said to your leaders, of your leaders. But God was fulfilling what all the prophets had declared about the Messiah beforehand, that he must suffer all these things. Now turn from your sins and turn to God so you can be cleansed of your sins. It's a call to come back. If you've been away, come back. The author of life wants to reauthor your book. He's more than able to do it. If your book has got off track and it's in the, the section that's kind of, you know, where um, 
in any great novel, there's the tension because everything's going wrong and, and the hero is getting attacked. If your book's kind of in that realm, then you just have to turn from your sins and come back because Jesus wants to forgive and he wants to reauthor your life. He wants to reauthor it. He is um, the God that has so much authority and power to do that. You know, the whole of the Old Testament was about God's faithfulness to Israel despite their unfaithfulness. And God will continue to be faithful to you. But come back. Let him reauthor your life. You know, the lame man in this story really typifies lost Israel without Jesus. He was in a hopeless condition, immobilised and broken, and he needed to be healed. His only salvation was Jesus, and yet his ailment disabled him. It kept him from going down into the pool or symbolically from meeting Jesus. He would never get to Jesus on his own. So he looked to the temple and to the goodness of men, but they couldn't deliver him. The help which the man cried out for was momentary. He actually approached Peter and John for money first. But when Jesus was put to death, it appeared that this man's hope of healing was gone. And yet it was the risen Jesus whose power healed him. And the Israelites, like this man, were in desperate need from birth. Because from birth they were sinners, they were enemies of God and their sin kept them from getting close to God. They were unfaithful to God time and time and time again. But through Christ's death, they too could join in the inheritance, the spiritual inheritance, the line from Abraham right through. And the lame man also typifies all people who are lost. And there might be some of you here tonight who are lost. But, you know, it's not just the Israelites who are lost. It's all of us who are lost. We are all lost without Jesus. You know, our sins have separated us from God and keep us from approaching him. And we might even be a Christian but have fallen away or fallen into sin and once again that's kept us from coming back. Well, I want to say to you tonight, come back because just as the apostles reached out to the lame man, giving him far more than he had hoped for or asked for, so the Lord Jesus has taken the initiative to come to fallen men, lost and helpless in their sins, and held out his nail-pierced hands and said, come, repent, and those that trust in me, I will make you whole. Thirdly, the lame man typifies many Christians because we, like him, may be in great need in a pitiful, beggarly state. How often do we come to God in prayer for meagre things like the beggar initially asked for, hardly believing that God cares or even wants to provide for us in a powerful way, in a way which we couldn't even dare to dream or hope for. We seem to think that our problem is getting God's attention when his eyes are always fixed on us and always wanting to bless us. He wants to give us so much more than anything we might ask or dare think. And lastly, God has given us his spirit. This is his authority. In 1 Corinthians 2, 8, 10, 12, it says, But the rulers of this world have not understood it. If they had, they would have never crucified our glorious Lord. That is what the scriptures mean when they say, No, I has seen nor ear has heard, no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. But we know these things because God has revealed them to us by his spirit and his spirit searches out everything and shows us even God's deep secrets. And God has actually given us his spirit, not the world's spirit, so we can know the wonderful things God has freely given to us. 
just think about that for half a moment. God, the God of the generations, the author of life, has given us his spirit. It's astounding. He has given us his spirit. And we have his authority in us. Finally, the author of life is the author to be adored. Verse 20 says, Then wonderful times of refreshment will come from the presence of the Lord and he will send Jesus your Messiah to you again. For he must remain in heaven until the time for the final restoration of all things as God promised long ago through his prophets. prophets. This particular verse, when you unpack it, is referring back to Isaiah 35. Jesus wants to restore. He's not called the Redeemer for nothing. He wants to bless. I just want to wind up by reading you part of Isaiah 35 because I just am so passionate tonight that your life is a book that has been authored by the author of life and it was bought at a cost. It was wrought. It was penned at such a cost and it has such an inheritance but it also has a forward-looking history which we must honour and, and it has for its future blessing Blessing beyond, beyond knowing. But it also has, if anyone tonight is feeling like that book is really in the dark pages of the novel, it has a restorative blessing part to it. Isaiah 35, we wind up by saying, even the wilderness will rejoice in those days. The desert will blossom with flowers. Yes, there'll be an abundance of flowers and singing and joy. The deserts will become green as the mountains of Lebanon, as lovely as Mount Carmel's pastures and the plain of Sharon. There the Lord will display his glory, the splendour of our God with this news. Strengthen those who have tired hands and encourage those who have weak knees. Say to those who are afraid, be strong and do not fear for your God is coming to destroy your enemies. He is coming to save you. And when he comes, he will open the eyes of the blind and unstop the ears of the deaf. The lame will leap like deer and those who cannot speak will shout and sing. Springs will gush forth in the wilderness and streams will water the desert. The parched ground will become a pool and springs of water will satisfy the thirsty land. Marsh, grass and reeds and rushes will flourish where desert jackals once lived and a main road will go through that once deserted land. It will be named the Highway of Holiness. Those who have been ransomed by the Lord which is us, will return to Jerusalem singing songs of everlasting joy. Sorrow and mourning will disappear and they will be overcome with joy and gladness. Oh, my prayer, my prayer tonight is that if your life and your book has been looking a little tired, a little tatty lately, just remember the inheritance you've got. Remember the author that's penning your story and remember that he desires to bless you, to refresh you, to heal you, to restore you and to bring you life and life in all its fullness. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we just thank you so much that you are the author of our life. You are the author of life and even death could not hold you. 
Lord Jesus, I pray that you reign in our lives, that you author our lives so that we are living for you, that you are in the driver's seat and we take the passenger seat. Lord, I pray that if there is anyone here tonight that has not ever asked you into their hearts and has not said, Jesus, you be the driver of my life, you be the author of my life, then Lord Jesus, I pray that you lay upon their hearts to do so, that they would seek out someone to talk to, that they'd come down the front for prayer. Lord Jesus, minister to your people, refresh them, restore you, help them to remember their inheritance and their responsibility. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen.